You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tom Jackman, a criminal justice reporter here at The Post. Today we're joined by Michael German, a former FBI special agent, an author who's written extensively and critically about the FBI, and a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice here today to discuss the rise in domestic extremism and efforts to combat it. During his time at the FBI, Mr. German went undercover and infiltrated neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups. Mr. German, welcome. Thanks for having me. We've got a lot to cover. Uh, so let's start mm -hmm. with this most recent plot to attack five substations that serve the Baltimore area. Uh, what do you know? What can you tell us about the individuals who were involved, who they are, what their goal was, and whether they came close to achieving it? Uh, so the most prominent among them was a, a man by the name of Brandon Russell, uh, who, if you follow white supremacist violence in the United States, who would have been familiar to you uh, because he was arrested as part of a, a, a 2017 incident in which a member of a group called Adam Waffen that Russell had formed, uh, mostly recruiting online, uh, had committed a double homicide in Florida. And uh, Russell, who then was in the Florida National Guard, uh, came home to find uh, his roommate slain and the police there. And what they found in the, in the residence wasn't just the two dead bodies that the, his colleague had killed, but rather uh, explosive materials and including some materials that were described as radiological. And the term Adam Waffen, uh, the name of his group, suggested uh, atomic warfare. Uh, so it was uh, understood that there was a preparation or at least the, the pulling together of materials to make a dirty bomb. So a very significant criminal activity. Unfortunately, he was sent to prison for only a short period of time. So this was somebody who was well known to law enforcement. And once he was released from prison, first the charges regarding the explosives, uh, it seems he went right back to uh, plotting destruction. And does Adam Waffen have a lot of adherence? And, and don't they have some sort of tie also to the Charlottesville uh, uprising from 2017? They do. It, it's a group that, uh, that Brandon Russell formed and uh, basically used the internet to help recruit. Uh, but it's international in scope uh, and has been connected, and members of this organization have been connected to a number of violent plots. Uh, weapons violations, and, and even a, a few murders. Uh, so it's a very active group uh, that, you know, we, we often refer to this type of activity as we have uh, on this program as domestic extremism. But these groups have never been uh, bound by national borders. Uh, they've always been uh, international in scope. And of course, the white supremacist ideas that animate their uh, plots are, are not bound by any national borders and, and are international in scope. What's the point of shooting at uh, an electrical substation? What are they hoping to accomplish with that? And did anything happen here that was particularly dangerous? Uh, well, when in my experience working undercover in these groups, they're essentially plotting all the time, trying to figure out what would be an effective target. Uh, 
they believe that the world is on the precipice of a a cleansing war, what they call a race war, uh, and it just needs a a small action that might tip things into chaos that will spark the the race war starting. Um, so often when they're doing this plotting, uh, a lot of the plots are very complex and hard to accomplish and kind of get scrubbed right very quickly. Uh, and often targeting infrastructure is easy because it's always there, right? An electrical substation isn't something that's going to be hard to find. Uh, it's always there. They're usually lightly guarded. Uh, and if they were able to somehow disable a, a substation, it could have a large effect on the broader community. Again, because they believe uh, the world is on the precipice of this war, they think something as small as the lights going out will start people killing one another. And once that starts, the, the world tips over into chaos. Um, it, and particularly if they could take out a number of substations, that would make it easier both because the police wouldn't be able to, or the uh, authorities wouldn't be able to get the lights on very quickly, uh, but more so that there would be uh, the spread of concern that that this was a broader plot, that there was more there, so that that fear would drive uh, more violent action. And that supposedly leads to, I've read this somewhere, I don't know if you've said it, a white ethno state, that the ultimate goal is to create a white nation. Is that right? Uh, that's right. And, you know, if, if you go do a deep dive into the ideology, there's various mechanisms for this state and a lot of different uh, philosophies and theologies and ideologies within the white supremacist movement, some religious, some not, uh, some entirely political. Um, but the goal is to create a of these groups that are on the violent vanguard of the movement is to is to just start the war. They don't really have very deep plans for what it's going to look like at the end of the war. They're just very convinced that that white people are naturally superior and in that environment will will be victorious in uh, securing the existence of white people as as one of the movement's terms suggests. Is there any kind of centralized connection or organization between these groups? Are they sharing ideas or ideologies? What is there any, you know, organization uh, in these uh, groups? There is certainly organization. It often doesn't look like uh, most organizations we're familiar with that have a chairman or director at the top and uh, uh, mid-level managers below that, and then the worker bees below it. They, they have adopted from a, a Klansman's writing back in the 1980s, the concept of leaderless resistance. So they tend to be loosely organized, uh, but they do have some organization and are often uh, networked with one another in one way or another. Um, uh, and the, the groups often have conflicting ideologies. So you might have a group that's that's very religious and then another group that's atheistic and they believe that religion is a creation, uh, uh, was created by Jewish people to keep white people down. So you can imagine if you have a very religious uh, 
white supremacist group and, and a uh, white supremacist group that believes all religion is conspiracy, those groups aren't going to get along very well. Um, but often in the violent vanguard, they try to put those ideological conflicts away for the, the practical purpose of, of getting some kind of terrorist act that will, uh, that will spark the race war. So uh, often it's not always obvious how these groups might interact with each other. Uh, but obviously, once they're uh, on the ground level, ready to do some kind of action, they need to have some kind of organization and that makes them vulnerable. Do you see any kind of comparable activity in groups associated with leftist politics, such as Antifa or Black Lives Matter? We hear complaints in the conservative, from conservatives who say that, that we in the media focus too much on the, the right, right wing extremists and that we don't take the threat of BLM or Antifa seriously enough. Uh, how do they compare? Uh, not very well. The, the white supremacist violence is much more persistent and much more deadly uh, uh, over a much longer period of time. Uh, you know, certainly there are sporadic incidences of violence that you could point out uh, that somebody who might have been affiliated with some kind of anarchist movement uh, but that tends to be very disaggregated and certainly not nearly as lethal as what white supremacists engage in all the time. And I would say it's actually the opposite, that, that the media often doesn't cover white supremacist violence as much as it occurs. Uh, uh, in fact, if a white, in fact, and, and not just media, the federal government, the, the FBI today can't tell you how many people white supremacists how many people white supremacists killed last year because they don't collect what we refer to as domestic terrorist incident data. So they don't know how many people white supremacists are killing. Uh, and when a white supremacist kills somebody, uh, the FBI might characterize that as domestic terrorism. Uh, they might, if the victim was a member of a uh, protected group, they might call that a hate crime instead. If they call it domestic terrorism, it's a top priority. If they call it a hate crime, that's part of the Civil Rights Division, that's going to be a much lower priority. Most often in the United States, white supremacists aren't treated as, as terrorists, but as gang members. And this, these cases often aren't worked by the FBI, they're worked by other law enforcement agencies like um, uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or even DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. And those cases are very good cases. The organized crime laws we have in this country are very robust, um, but they don't get counted as terrorism by the media or by law enforcement. So my concern as a former law enforcement officer is that that the FBI loses a lot of the intelligence that they could obtain uh, by investigating those cases. And even when you look at Brandon Russell, the subject of this most recent plot, that was purely an accident that he was caught, even though they were operating online in a manner that, that made them quite vulnerable. And, uh, you know, but for his roommate deciding that he was going to kill two of the Adam Waffen members, that that plot might well have gone on and, and perhaps even succeeded. So 
it's really important for law enforcement to focus on the criminal acts and the people who perpetrate them rather than the ideology, because there are many people in this movement who are deeply committed to the ideology and hopeful of this outcome of a white ethno state, but who don't commit criminal acts to get there and, and sometimes don't even support the idea of committing criminal acts to get there. They feel that uh, writing newsletters and making speeches is the more effective way to convince the American public that, that their route is, it, it will lead to a more peaceful and, and uh, successful society. After the January 6th attack on the Capitol, we've heard a lot about the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters. Where do they fit in to this whole spectrum? Are they equally dangerous uh, and violent? Uh, they're certainly part of the soup, uh, and and it both have histories of criminal activities that should have given law enforcement a clue that their gathering in D.C. on January 6th uh, was potentially combustible. Um, uh, with with groups like um, like the Oath Keepers, they have a history of confronting law enforcement. So again. There shouldn't have been any mistake about what their intentions might be on January 6th. Uh, with the Proud Boys, they they also had been committing violence all across the country, mostly at political rallies. And again, that's that's the kind of intelligence that law enforcement should be paying attention to, rather than what random people on the internet might be saying. Uh, uh, the dangerous thing about the oath keeper about the oath keepers is their re recruitment within the military and law enforcement, which was also a hallmark of the Adam Waffen division. Uh, with the Proud Boys, uh, for whatever reasons, uh, local politicians have often embraced them, uh, even when their violence is 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 public and and prevalent. Uh, hiring them as security officials for their events. Uh, being seen palling around with them and photographed with them. So that becomes very dangerous because when an authority figure uh, embraces these groups or these ideologies, they become much more dangerous. They can do a lot more if they have a, a patina of legitimacy given to them by a person of authority. And of course, once people like that are in government or supporters of these groups are in government, they have even more powerful tools to harm people uh, in pursuit of their goals. Well, that leads us to a story in the Post today about uh, a D.C. police lieutenant who was communicating with the leader of the Proud Boys in advance of January 6th, advising them to encrypt their communications, alerting Enrique Tarrio to his arrest warrant. You've written and spoken extensively about the problems with law enforcement, not recognizing the true nature of this extremism, and you've just talked about it here. Uh, and you provided testimony to the January 6th committee about it. What, what's going wrong here? Why do we have this situation? Uh, unfortunately, I think uh, to a large degree, law enforcement is in denial about this problem. Um, you know, certainly it was an issue in the early 1990s when I was first asked to go undercover in these groups. We were working off a FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force in Los Angeles that included a number of federal agencies, not just the FBI, and local agencies like the LAPD and LA Sheriff's Department. And uh, when the operation started, we were brought into a room and, and the managers at the FBI said, 
you know, we have to be very careful with this operation. We're sending an agent into a very dangerous and violent group, and we want to make sure that 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 the information that this operation is occurring is very tightly held, even within our, our law enforcement agencies. Uh, so it was certainly a warning given to me in the early 1990s. Again, in 2006, uh, uh, that warning was put on paper, uh, an FBI intelligence report. Uh, it was released through the Freedom of Information Act request where uh, analysts were looking at, at white supremacist groups and said, hey, they're really recruiting hard within law enforcement. This could be a problem for us. By 2015, it had actually become part of the FBI's counterterrorism policy guide, which said even more directly, not just that, that law or that white supremacist groups were trying to recruit within, recruit within law enforcement, but that domestic terrorism investigations uh, need to curtail the tactics they use because the subjects of those investigations involving white supremacy and far-right mil militias often have active links to law enforcement. So they forego uh, the, the complete use of the terrorist watch list because law enforcement can see that list. And they're afraid of tipping off law enforcement that that certain subjects that they might be acquainted with or affiliated with are, are under investigation. So obviously the FBI agents on the ground see this as a serious problem. Unfortunately, uh, members of Congress have, have repeatedly said that the FBI briefs them and tells them it's not a problem. And when I testified before the House Oversight Committee on this issue, they also asked the FBI to testify. And according to, to a letter later released by Representative Jamie Raskin, uh, the, the FBI told him they wouldn't testify at the hearing because they didn't see this as a problem, and they actually disavowed the 2006 intelligence report. Well, after January 6, obviously a lot of law enforcement officers, or too many law enforcement officers were, were involved in that assault, including uh, people convicted of crimes, officers convicted of crimes at the rally. So. Uh, shortly after that, uh, another FBI uh, uh, analytical product was released that repeated the warnings of that 2006 document. So here, the FBI is disavowing their own internal intelligence because they don't want to accept that this is a problem. And it's also a problem, uh, uh, this, um, the disavowal is also a problem in many law enforcement agencies, and they often present the problem in, in a way that's different from what it is, where they'll say, well, you know, we can't really get into the minds of every police officer on our department or, or scour their social media when they're off duty. Uh, that would be too time consuming, too intrusive, violation of the First Amendment, rather than looking at civilian complaints. You know, oftentimes when, it, when there's a problem officer, the community knows that. And they know who might have used racial epithets during an arrest or who, who might abuse the community. So uh, you also, it, it's also clear to me that the people in the police departments know. So the rank and file, they know who the problem officers are. Uh, but the way whistleblower laws work, particularly in law enforcement, it's often more threatening to your career to report a colleague's racist misconduct than it is to actually engage in the racist misconduct. So uh, protecting whistleblowers, recruiting the community to assist in identifying these officers, those are the methods uh, that should 
that law enforcement should focus on, and they should focus on behavior and and, and not just, you know, like they try to present it as, as getting into the heads of, of, of their workforce. No, they just have to follow and, and address the, the abusive behavior that takes place. We've got a question from the audience. Uh, Alison Zepp from Illinois asks, some European countries, such as Germany, have laws against domestic terrorism. What can the United States learn from the German experience as we look ahead to combat this rising threat without infringing on our citizens' constitutional rights? So uh, that's a great question, and, and, and I appreciate that question because it helps me clear up uh, a false notion that seems to have taken hold uh, it, including in, in newsrooms among journalists, that there is no domestic terrorism law in the United States. I, I worked domestic terrorism as an FBI agent in the early 1990s. Nobody suggested there weren't sufficient federal laws to justify those investigations. And in fact, those, just, those investigations resulted in successful prosecution. There's an entire chapter in the United States Criminal Code called terrorism. It's not ambiguous. It defines both international and domestic terrorism, like most statutes do. They start with a list of definitions. And then it lists 57 federal crimes that are called federal crimes of terrorism. In, in looking at those crimes, 51 of them apply directly to any terrorist activity that takes place in the United States. And again, these neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups and far-right uh, militant groups, they're not entirely domestic. They're often operating internationally. So even the laws that only apply to transnational terrorism can sometimes be applied to the criminal acts these groups are involved in. So there are plenty of laws. And I, I wrote a book called Wrong Priorities, or I'm sorry, I wrote a report called uh, uh, Wrong Priorities on Fighting Terrorism that listed not just all the federal crimes of terrorism, but dozens of other statutes that, that the Justice Department regularly uses to prosecute domestic terrorism cases. These include organized crime statutes, as I mentioned before, conspiracy statutes, hate crime statutes. There is more than sufficient law for law enforcement to, to effectively address white supremacist violence in the United States. It's that they choose to prioritize other crimes. And that's really the problem. So it's not a matter of giving them more laws. It's a matter of doing more oversight to ensure they're using their resources effectively towards the most violent and active threats. And in the area that we call domestic terrorism, that uh, in a, every year involves white supremacists and far-right militant violence that's far more prevalent than any other kind of violence that we call terrorism. Well, if you listen to FBI Director Ray, and we had a short clip of him in the intro, he talks about far-right extremism and makes it sound like a priority. Uh, are they, is that a lot of talk? Are they actually taking it seriously now? Are they putting people into this? Or is it still uh, just smoke? Uh, so uh, th this has been a change since, since about the 2017 around the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. Um, where the the rhetoric has has addressed and and acknowledged white supremacist violence as as the most prevalent and and deadly violence in the United States, 
Um, and, you know, certainly the, the FBI's effort uh, on the January 6th cases, that's the biggest case the FBI has ever worked in its 100-plus year history, uh, with over 900 people charged, I believe, at this point, maybe even more. Uh, they're still arresting people uh, that, that participated in the event, still trying to identify them and, and bring them into custody. So that's still an ongoing investigation and uh, taking a lot of resources. But uh, contrary to what he said there, I think they do look at January 6th as a standalone incident, that everybody woke up Tuesday morning, not ex or that, that morning and not expecting very much, and this horrible event happened. And now they're doing the, the post-mortem, where I, many of the people who were involved in the violence at, on January 6th uh, had been violent at political rallies prior, in public. This isn't something that's hidden in the dark recesses of the web. This is public violence these groups have been engaging in. And some of the people who, who now the government accuses of leading that violence became prominent by committing public violence in places like Portland, uh, Oregon. So, you know, this, there, there is no excuse for law, law enforcement's failure to prepare for this act. And in fact, there were two uh, violent rallies in Washington, D.C. in the two months prior involving many of these same individuals. And there were arrests for those, for that violence. Uh, including the leader of the Proud Boys, who, who was arrested when he came to participate in the January 6th event. So you know, there was no, uh, there should not have been any uh, failure of intelligence. <laughs> the, the, you didn't need an intelligence agency. There was plenty of public evidence that this, was, this event was going to be problematic. But if you look at the January 6th committee depositions of the FBI officials, they're talking about things that are happening on the internet and, and trying to analyze the atmospherics of what's going on in social media, rather than following the crimes, investigating the crimes and following the individuals who commit them. Now, the- Can I ask you one started, other question? Sure, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but we got, we're getting down toward the end. And I wanted to ask you about these allegations against the FBI of anti-Catholic bigotry. And there was a letter from 20 uh, state attorney generals sent to Merrick Garland, uh, and Director Ray, can you explain what's going on here and if there's any validity to these allegations? Um, and, and this is a report that, that just recently came out based on a, uh, an FBI intelligence product that identified uh, radical Catholic groups uh, that, that might be involved in some kind of violence later and was suggesting that the FBI should set tripwires and try to develop sources uh, that might give them information about any, any uh, planned violent activity. Um, this is the type of intelligence product that the FBI has been putting out for years. You might remember back in uh, 2011, uh, when I was working at the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, there was a Freedom of Information Act request where we obtained a lot of the FBI's counterterrorism materials, and there were this same kind of uh, almost I refer to it as a Wikipedia page uh, for the intelligence community on these different groups. And the problem is the vast majority of people in any of these groups, whether it was the, the Muslim communities that were targeted immediately after 9-11 or uh, black activists protesting police violence that we know is the Black Lives Matter movement, but the FBI called 
black identity extremists, that the vast majority of the people in all of these groups don't commit any crimes or not violent. So why you would want to gather evidence against people who aren't involved in criminal activity, who you have no evidence to believe they're involved in criminal activity, uh, it is what creates this abusive kind of product and and the improper thinking that that it, that looking at everybody and then trying to figure out which one of them might someday commit a crime isn't the proper way to approach this problem. And I would put well, yeah, the I mean, is is that is conservative Catholicism a a violent threat? Well, like any group, there might be somebody within that group who who uh, goes overboard and engages some kind of violence, uh, and and there might be evidence that the FBI can, can point to, but there are FBI agents who have been convicted of committing murders. That doesn't mean that that in order to stop murders, we should investigate every FBI agent and monitor their social media, right? It, it Like any group, there, there are people who can, can go off and commit crime, but, but it's, it's turning the problem upside down, where fortunately, there are, there are a much smaller group of individuals who want to do harm and are capable of doing harm than they are of individuals who talk about things that might scare the government. Uh, and rather than looking at everybody who says something online or elsewhere in the community as part of these see something, say something programs they have, they should focus on the crimes and investigating from the criminal activity out. And and I just wanted to complete that this is this is how the Brandon Russell, this last Brandon Russell case happened. Right. You have a person who is involved in criminal activity with a bunch of other people that, okay, we've sent him to jail, but he hasn't disavowed these ideas or this planning. And if we followed the individual who had committed crimes in the past like this and had talked about continuing them, then, you know, that might be a more effective way of, of prevention than trying to guess who in the universe of people uh, is going to do something bad in the future. I have about 56 follow-up questions for you, but that's all the time we have, and I'm really sorry about that. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Mike German, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.